Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. Today we're exploring ways to reduce poverty. Now, perhaps your first thought is to wonder why an organization like Donors Trust would be talking about poverty in the first place. After all, many people think about Donors Trust's sizable support of public policy think tanks. And that view, though, doesn't give enough credit to the work that free market ideas can do to liberate people from poverty. We've all heard the old adage that you can give a man to fish and feed him for a day, or teach him to fish and feed him for a lifetime. But what if it's illegal to fish in the first place? For those who don't see a place for the conservative, libertarian think tank community to engage in the discussion over poverty, I am excited to introduce you to three organizations that will, I hope, change your mind. These groups are leveraging the idea of a think tank to break down barriers standing in the way of those wishing to escape poverty. So let's get to it and hear directly from these leaders. Now, your perception of a think tank may be of a place that churns out white papers and supplies news shows with talking heads, and you aren't necessarily wrong. But how can a think tank go beyond white papers and policy briefings to make real change in people's lives? Such a hands-on strategy likely isn't what you think about when you talk about your local state think tank. The Georgia Center for Opportunity hasn't let that stop them. Right at the top of GCO's webpage, it gives you the organization's mission, vibrant communities where everyone can achieve their potential. GCO's focus is on breaking down barriers to work, helping families maximize education, and enabling stronger families to create thriving communities. Recently, GCO launched a three-state project called the Alliance for Opportunity to test strategies aimed at increasing work and reducing poverty. Randy Hicks, CEO of Georgia Center for Opportunity, is with me to describe the alliance that GCO has built with uh, the Pelican Institute in Louisiana and Texas Public Policy Institute. Randy, take it away. Thanks, Peter. This is a real privilege. At GCO, we started to have a greater impact when we began connecting our research and policy work to real people, real problems, and real solutions. So when I think about the Alliance for Opportunity, I think of two people as examples of why our organizations, the Pelican Institute, Texas Public Policy Foundation, and the Georgia Center for Opportunity came together in the first place. And at first, there's Adolphus. And quite frankly, he's the kind of guy you're typically going to give up on. 58 years old, arrested over 90 times, uh, served six prison terms, never had, in his own words, a legitimate job, which really bothered him. But this guy that you'd be tempted to give up on, he did it. He got a job he loves and that he's proud of. How? Uh, Because some policy barriers were pulled down that gave him access to opportunity and because someone gave him a chance in the community. And then there's Shannon, a single mom who on a Friday afternoon was offered a promotion and a pay raise, went home excited about it, and then with tears in her eyes, turned it all down the following Monday. 
Why did she do that? Because she would have lost thousands more in government assistance than she would have gained in pay. Now, what Adolphus and Shannon had in common is the daringness, the will to climb out of tough conditions. Um, but there were, there were conditions that included some bad policies that were working against them. But they needed someone to give them a chance, but they also needed some laws changed. Now, the alliance exists to make the principles and ideas we believe in come alive for people like Adolphus and Shannon and for families and communities facing barriers to opportunity and barriers to human well-being. This is a regional conservative anti-policy agenda rooted in civil society and in free enterprise. Now, rather than just focusing on safety net reforms, our efforts are focused on reducing, now, this is super important, it's focused on reducing the demand for social and government programs by tearing down barriers. And we're going to tear down barriers by first, protecting the right to earn a living and creating opportunities to pursue skilled careers. And second, uh, by creating pathways to employment for people who've entered the correction system. And as you know, millions of our fellow Americans have. Third, by helping people move from government dependency to self-sufficiency by eliminating safety net rules that punish work. But all that still may raise a question. Why would three organizations come together, come together to address these issues? Why not just hunker down in our own states? Well, first, we're in states with similar demographics, uh, similar levels of, of poverty and wealth disparities. But also, by joining together, we're able to leverage talent and resources across three states to solve problems that have been left unsolved for decades of welfare policy. Between our organizations, now we have colleagues who have worked in the White House, the State House, and others who have personally experienced and climbed out of poverty. So we have an alliance of three leading organizations bringing more firepower and coordination to build the political will in the South to advance a comprehensive plan for reform. Reforms that will move people from dependency to self-sufficiency, purpose, and belonging. I love this project. You know that. I've been a big fan of it for a long time. Why these three organizations? Why Louisiana? Why Texas? I mean, you mentioned that there's similar similar levels of poverty and kind of the demographics are similar. But is there any other thing that's kind of bound these three together versus any of the others in the state policy network universe? Yeah, well, there are obviously a lot of kindred spirits in the state policy network. Kevin Roberts, the head of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, Daniel Erspommer, the head of the Pelican Institute. And I feel a particular kindred spirit and a real passion for focusing in on these issues, uh, perhaps more than we do any other issues. Uh, we kind of share this commitment to, uh, as I said in my previous comments, making these principles we're so committed to come alive for people. I mean, if if uh, our ideas and a free enterprise of civil society stands for anything, it stands for people like the ones I mentioned, Adolphus and, uh, and Shannon. And so, uh, and then on top of that, we had teams that matched up well. So there were a lot of things that went into play. Obviously, it starts with uh, the leadership of the organizations. We're kindred spirits. We get along especially well. 
Um, there are others we do as well, but this just made sense for us to start regionally, start relatively small, though it's no small population when you combine our three states and then expand from there. So I want to come back to the expansion piece. But first, you mentioned Adolphus, you mentioned Shannon. Tell us the rest of the story. I mean, do they have you seen any policy changes or anything that have turned their lives around particularly? Yeah, well, there's a very happy ending to one and the other one is still a struggle. As far as Adolphus goes, you know, we spent years working on the recidivism rate in Georgia. We had too many people returning to prison after getting out. Well, the number one predictor of whether or not somebody is going to go back to prison is whether or not they get a job. It is the number one predictor. And so we went to work with the legislature, Criminal Justice Reform Council, uh, governor's office, to identify those barriers that kept people out of work, removed many of those barriers. Still a lot of work to be done on that front, but Adolphus and others like him benefited from those those changes. As far as Shannon goes, those problems still exist. One of the reasons we talk about Shannon is that she's the kind of person that anyone anywhere on the political spectrum uh, will, uh, well, they'll hear her story and say, man, that's just wrong. Someone who wants to climb, someone who wants to work hard and earn a promotion, and yet she has to turn it down because the system has uh, incentives all screwed up. So that she serves, continues to serve as an inspiration for us because we've got to make sure that happens less and less. I mean, that's essentially the welfare cliff that people talk about, right? That transition from welfare to self-sufficiency and how jagged it can be. Yeah, if you solve that, that, you deserve a a Nobel Prize. That's a that's a big deal. So so to wrap this up, (laughs) we're we're shooting for the we're shooting for the Nobel Prize. Excellent. Very good. So talk to us about the measurement piece. How do you know this effort's successful? And then if it if you do judge it successful, how can you scale this up to include more states and more people? So uh, that this is the probably the single most most important question. You know, there's a tendency and I've been guilty of this in the past, to measure success, perhaps without even necessarily thinking about it, by the noise you're making, right? Yeah, you were on this talk show, on this radio show, uh, you know, your, your stuff's being quoted in different publications. Uh, you may have even defeated a bad bill or passed a good bill. But the reality is that ultimately what we want to measure success by is whether or not uh, fewer people are unemployed, Uh, fewer people are living in poverty. And so what we've got to do is kind of narrow those measurements around specific segments. For instance, 18 to 24-year-old young adults, where almost 20% of them in Georgia, for instance, aren't working, aren't going to school, have nothing beyond uh, a a high school diploma. And then then prime-age adults, 25 to, to 54 You got to zero in on some segments and come up with strategies for specific segments. So you're measuring success by changed lives. That's what that's what matters to us. And then in terms of scaling, uh, really what that comes down to is creating the roadmap for how we're getting things done and making that applicable uh, for other states. We are already, just so you know, Peter, and your listeners do as well, we're already talking to other states who really are looking to be a part of this. So we are putting out a detailed roadmap about where we're headed in the next couple of months. 
And that's absolute, absolutely going to be key to uh, scaling this up and working with other groups. That's great. Oh, well, Nobel Prize or bust. Go get them, Randy. All right. Thanks, Peter. Okay, here's three puzzle pieces for us to put together. One, globally, we know that free markets and more liberalized economies have driven the dramatic decreases in global poverty over the past several decades. We also know that outsiders coming into poor countries too often do more harm than good. Third, there are free market think tanks in many of these emerging countries trying hard to share the good news of markets and change the trajectory of their nations. Matt Warner, president of the Atlas Network, started and leads Atlas's Human Dignity and Freedom Project, which connected these three puzzle pieces to overcome what Matt calls the outsider's dilemma, and instead strengthens international think tanks to better push proposals that will reduce poverty. Now, Atlas is building out the U.S. version of the Human Dignity and Freedom Project. So Matt, tell us about it. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Uh, One of the things that I think should have free marketers in the U.S. pretty excited is that the appetite to think differently about poverty is out there. We know that uh, direct service, doing things to help people enduring poverty in the moment, um, that plays a certain role that helps them get through the day, but that's not solving poverty. So at the same time, we also need to get smarter about how to really create the environment for people to lift themselves up. And um, I want to share a quick story out of uh, Oakland, California. There was a a young couple, Javier and Maria, who uh, were participating in a uh, in a poverty program where they shared their financial decision making uh, for collection and study. And while they were doing this, they stumbled upon or got involved with uh, an opportunity to buy a home. Now, the staff of the um, nonprofit that was uh, collecting their financial decision-making data got nervous that they were making a bad decision because they uh, assumed that it was a predatory loan and that they would go belly up. But this nonprofit had a policy not to intervene in the decisions. They, They just wanted to learn more about the decisions people made. Well, sure enough, Javier and Maria bought the house, and sure enough, uh, it it was a pretty disadvantageous loan, and they started to worry that they weren't going to be able to make uh, the uh, the balloon payments that were coming soon. And what happened is, is the lesson to all of us about how um, things actually happen in markets. And what happened was Javier and Maria's friends in the community, some of whom were also participating in that tracking program, uh, learned of this problem, and they all got together and pitched in to uh, improve their home, to build the equity in the home so that they could refinance and get a better deal. And through that process, not only did did Javier and Maria really learn for themselves how the uh, home lending market works, but the other important thing is that that sort of social innovation, that understanding spread to the rest of the community that had pitched in to help. And they, for the first time, had um, the idea that they could also be buying homes instead of sending money home to their home countries. And uh, and so it really had this sort of interesting effect. And if you imagine us as do-gooders who want to put our uh, education and resources to benefit people in low-income com- communities, and we come up with a plan to help them you know, increase homeownership, None of us would ever come up with this idea of like, okay, let's let's have people buy bad, uh, homes with bad loans and then learn from that mistake and get together and help each other out. No, this is iterative change, and what and the reason that it works 
is that people are not objects of our pity only. They are dynamic, interesting people who have their own sense of values and preferences, and they can bring their knowledge to bear in real time. This is what Hayek called the knowledge of time and place. It's what do-gooders um, and central planners can't ever collect and use to make decisions in real time, the knowledge of what's going on in the moment and what people really care about. And so the reason why this is important, Peter, for the Atlas Network is that we support the think tanks that are identifying ways to make the decision set bigger for individuals to optimize and make decisions in real time using their knowledge. And that is that has a, you know, in broad strokes, we're we're familiar with these, you know, uh, deregulation, free markets and those sort of things. But we are seeing that think tanks in Atlas Network are changing the way that they engage low-income communities so that they can learn from them. What are the the different ways that bad government policy is particularly harmful to what you're trying to do? And so we're very much now focused in not only investing in those kinds of projects, but bringing together think tank leaders who are interested in this to learn more quickly uh, how they can make a big impact. So it's essentially trying to change the way that these think tanks are even approaching, even talking about, even thinking about in the first place, this issue of poverty and actually recognizing it isn't something that's just a squishy issue that, you know, maybe gets talked about on the left or with social welfare groups, but that free market groups actually have a place in this conversation. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we want to see is that people who uh, understand and can advocate effectively for free markets feel very... Um, empowered and authentic about championing the causes and, and removing government injustices among low-income communities. And to do that, um, we think, think think tanks really ought to learn uh, their uh, the, that market and learn from it. And we think of our think tank leaders in, in our network as, as, as entrepreneurs. We don't think of them as um, you know, agents of us that we're going to come up with a plan and then tell them what, what to do. So it's really been a process of, of having a, a conversation collaboratively with, with think tank leaders. We did a survey in April 2019 among think tank leaders in the U.S. Uh, to just gauge their views of how they see their organization's role in um, solving uh, in, in, uh, in solving poverty. And it was really mixed. I mean, some some felt, um, you know, very excited about taking this on. Some said it really wasn't, um, you know, part of of the brand that they saw as sort of motivating uh, the work that they do. And so our our attitude certainly wasn't that we needed to convince anybody who needed convincing. Instead, we just focused our our efforts on supporting those who were interested. And then what we've seen since then is that as as those who were interested started leading the way. And showing all of us all of the innovative ways that free market think tanks could be uh, engaging with and supporting and achieving real reform and wins for low-income communities, then others start to catch the the vision and opt in. And we, of course, welcome them anytime that they see opportunity here. So Atlas isn't bringing a slate of issues saying, you know, these are the things to talk about. It's more a reframing of the purpose of the think tank in the first place towards advancing the same issues, but maybe using a different vocabulary? Yeah, and also just um, un understanding that there are um, potential allies out there who may not agree with us on, on everything, but 
um, absolutely uh, want to partner in good faith. Of course, in in anything that can become you know political, you 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 have extremes that can sometimes um, cloud uh, our understanding of of the landscape. But what what the think tanks we've partnered with in the U.S. have shown us is there are lots of of people uh, who are willing to work in good faith because they just want to see things uh, get better and um, and and we can find um uh shared uh interests and shared values and that's an opportunity to really get something done because it it makes it less about um this faction versus this faction and more about where can we come together and actually uh make a difference in in lives um today um and and that's you know anytime that it you know with a little bit of work and open-mindedness if you can do that that's really inspiring and if we can measure in lives changed instead of media hits or white papers produced, all of us are probably going to be in a much better place. Thanks, Matt. This was great. I appreciate it. Before we get to our final guest and his organization, I'd like to share a little bit about Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, we offer a terrific charitable giving tool called a Donor Advised Fund. If you aren't familiar with Donor Advised Funds, you might think about them as a charitable savings account. With a donor-advised fund, donors gain a way to centralize and streamline their charitable giving. What do I mean by that? Well, I can speak from my own experience. Every month, my wife and I send money off to our Donors Trust donor-advised fund. That contribution into the fund is the tax-deductible gift, but it doesn't have to go out to charity right away. We tend to do our giving at the start of the new year, drawing from what we've built up over the past year. However, when a giving opportunity comes along... We already have charitable dollars set aside to quickly get out the door. There are so many great reasons to use a fund, from excellent tax benefits to privacy to the advice and partnership of working with a principled organization like Donors Trust. But how can a donor advise fund a Donors Trust benefit your giving? Find out by exploring DonorsTrust.org and reach out to us to schedule a private exploratory call. That's DonorsTrust.org. Okay. Let's move on to our final conversation for today. San Francisco, the iconic city by the bay, which has become the cautionary tale of how not to deal with homelessness. Over the past few years, the homeless population in San Francisco has skyrocketed, uh, increasing 31% since 2017 and increasing even more in the neighboring cities. As a donor's trust client explained to me just the other day, this is very much a problem of and a failure of policy and leadership. The Oakland, California-based Independent Institute is well-positioned to respond uh, and is doing so in its, with its campaign for housing and human dignity. This is more than just an analysis of the problem or just a list of proposals. And Graham Walker, Executive Director of Independent Institute, is here to tell us about the campaign and the unique ways it's leveraging media and relationships to, we hope, actually get something done about this growing problem. Graham, tell us about the project. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for having me on. Um, we, of course, are a research and publication organization here uh, across the bay from San Francisco. We can almost literally look across the water and see what would be and what was the beautiful city across the way. But uh, as you say, it's become afflicted with this incredible growth of homelessness, uh, partly because of policies here in California and also because uh, San Francisco and California generally have become a magnet for people escaping other places because of the policies in place here. Um, put it this way, um, 
We want people to get beyond being homeless. In fact, our whole campaign publicly that we're about to launch this fall is called Beyond Homeless. People need help. They also need to be able to participate ultimately as they're getting helped in a sustainable economic system that has reasonable housing opportunities. So, you know, people need help and they need to be able to get into a working economy. Those are kind of the two elements of the, of the equation here. We like to say that many of the homeless in California and in this area around San Francisco are victims of the system. Now, that's a term that used to be popular back in the 70s, and it meant something different, but it's very applicable here. Victims of the system, not of the system of, shall we say, free market capitalism, but rather victims of a system that we call the homeless industrial complex. Uh, First of all, California has adopted a bunch of housing policies, residential construction policies that constrict people's opportunity uh, to get into the housing market. And then secondly, um, there are many social assistance programs which take as their operating assumption um, that there's little hope for people who are homeless to regain their sense of human agency. Um, It's kind of a one-two punch, I would say. Uh, First, there are policies like zoning and environmental policies and so-called inclusionary zoning policies and union labor policies and so forth that really have the effect of kicking out uh, the bottom rungs of the housing ladder so that they just don't exist anymore. The lower cost housing scarcely exists. It's no longer economically feasible because of California policy. And then on top of that, the two The two-punch of the one-two punch, Peter, is that there are these social aid policies like what is called housing first and sometimes what is called so-called harm reduction, which purposely carry no expectations or incentives for people to recover or improve. And so that combination is kind of a one-two punch that knocks people out. We think that people need more than that. Uh, You've got to address the policy issues that make housing so unavailable and uneconomical to build. But at the same time, people need help. And we have been become part of this remarkable coalition in the San Francisco area called the Urban Vision Alliance, which is a group of both for-profit and non-profit NGO organizations, all concerned about homelessness in San Francisco, concerned to find a new way to address it. Uh, and we're coming up with a model that involves borrowing some really interesting insights from other policies adopted elsewhere, like in San Antonio, Texas. I can tell you a little bit about their uh, Haven for Hope program there, and local providers like the Salvation Army who are ready to provide non-governmentally a uh, kind of a wraparound service system that people can actually buy into, which will respect their sense of human agency, give them reasons to reform, and to reach out to a different kind of life, while at the same time, on the other hand, we're also tackling the public policy issues that constrict housing. So uh, it's a one-two punch that's knocked people out. We want to turn that around and have kind of a one-two help that gets, gets victims out from the crunch of this really a devastating combination of factors. And if we can do it in California, if we can do it in San Francisco, people can do it somewhere else too. Well, that's that's one of my big questions because this is not just a Bay Area issue. Uh, I think you told me that Orange County has seen a massive explosion down in Southern uh, California. We see tent cities in LA, we see tent cities in Washington, DC, New York, everywhere. How do you anticipate, if you guys can be successful, how does this become scalable? How do you move this out to other other organizations? Well, keeping in mind that there are two sides to the problem. The one is you know, public policy affecting residential housing, and the other side is the, the social assistance systems, which are totally messed up. 
On the latter point, we have really taken um, a page and learned quite a bit from a project in San Antonio, Texas called Haven for Hope, um, which got endorsed by uh, the then mayor um, some years back, but really is essentially non-governmental. It's a remarkable complex of services that people can opt into with the expectation that they can make progress. They can overcome their addictions. They can develop new skills. Uh, and they're expected to do so uh, to gain access to the facilities and the benefits on an increasing level. Haven for Hope has done a remarkable job at bringing the homeless out of the center city of San Antonio and actually getting them back on their feet. Now, the difference in Texas is that the uh, residential housing policies have not, up to this point at least, been as bad as California policies, not as restrictive to the housing market. And so if you can, if you're in San Antonio with Haven for Hope, you can, you can regain some of that sense of human agency and, and dignity and skills to get back into life. And there's going to be a broader array of housing uh, that's in Texas that you can actually get your get yourself into uh, than in California. But we want Texans not to adopt California's restrictive policies on housing instruction and to help Californians see they need to be to be scaled back. But we think that the model for the social service provision, non-governmental, respectful of people's dignity, uh, which we've seen in San Antonio, um, can be adopted in San Francisco. And if it can be adopted here, it can be adopted elsewhere. But it needs to be combined, as I said, with a recognition that the constrictive policies in California that have made it almost uneconomical entirely to build residential housing at the bottom end of the market, those things have to be scaled back. So as people recover their agency, there's a place for them to opt into. There's cheap housing to get into. Uh, California policies have made cheap housing really, really scarce. So got to address both sides. But we think it's doable here. And if here, then yes, elsewhere. And how has the reaction been? You, know, you obviously come at things from a free market perspective. You're working with groups of many different ideological ilks. I yes, would that's right. That's right. Does that actually give you more credibility? Does it? Do you have a higher hill to climb? How are you making friends and, and bridging that divide? Well, it's pretty intriguing, Peter. Uh, here in San Francisco, this group that I mentioned, the Urban Vision Alliance, really it does bring together people from a variety of perspectives. Uh, some of whom might not be, you know, starting out with our recognition of the value of sustainable free markets. Um, but you know what people in California increasingly have in common who care about this subject is that they have seen what doesn't work. And so because of that sense of, well, if not despair, at least, you know, frustration with the billions spent uh, governmentally and yet increasing growth of homelessness in California, there's an openness to new ideas. And so the Urban Vision Alliance has actually welcomed us officially as their quote unquote policy partner. Um, and this um, report that we're about to issue, which will come also with some promotion and so forth, um, will be persuading not only our own partners in the Urban Vision Alliance, but others throughout the community uh, without condemning you know, other approaches, showing you know, what hasn't worked and what could work better and has not been tried. So I think because of the frustration, there's an openness uh, to market-based approaches that greater than there might have been a few years ago. That's terrific. And of course, Independent has long been uh, on the cutting edge of trying new media. And you did your LoveGov uh, series a while back. Oh, yeah. And, and mm -hmm. I understand there's a film associated with this project as well. Is that right? 
Yeah, it's produced by the same people who helped us with LoveGov, um, uh, Emergent Order out of uh, Austin, Texas. And they've done a beautiful job. We have not yet released it, but we'll be doing so this fall. It's, it's called Beyond Homeless. And it, it walks people through, you know, the human face of the problem. And also, re- remarkably, talking with people on the streets and those who help those on the streets who look like kind of standard San Francisco progressives, and in some ways they are, but they recognize that something different is needed. And they're so open to this new concept, which respects people's dignity and liberty, and doesn't want to just be satisfied that, you know, if we, if we warehouse these people in what they call housing first, then that's enough. It's not enough. You can't warehouse people. You have to address them as human beings, and just giving them housing will not help them. You've got to help them recover their sense of ability to direct their lives and reform the housing market so there could be affordable market sustainable housing, not just a bunch of temporary government mandates here and there to produce a few cheap units. As you say, it's a one-two punch, and I think you guys have a a unique approach to trying to, to tackle it. So good luck to you. Thank you, Graham. Thank you very much. If you want to reduce poverty with your philanthropy, your charitable dollars can be put to work at all levels of the problem. By all means, give to those causes that feed the hungry and offer emergency assistance. Those are important to our civil society. So are those that teach people to fish, as it were, such as job training and skill-building programs. But don't discount the need to make change at the policy level, changes that can alter the trajectory around poverty in a positive way. Maybe it means a policy organization truly getting to know not just the issues around poverty, but also the people themselves that are looking for a way out, the way that Georgia Center for Opportunity is doing in partnership with Pelican and Texas Public Policy. Perhaps it means think tanks asking new questions of their own mission, such as what Atlas's Human Dignity and Freedom Project aims to inspire among Atlas's affiliated organizations. Maybe a think tank's role can be in building a coalition of non-traditional allies to fight back on a single issue in the way that Independent Institute is doing in the Bay Area. I thank our guests for coming on, and I hope you will learn more about them at donorstrust.org slash podcast. We have information about the organization's links to some of the different articles and videos that were referenced during the discussion. And will you do me a favor? I would personally appreciate your thoughts on this episode. This is Donors Trust's first experiment with podcasting, and your perspectives will allow us to make this better and more valuable. Email tellmemore at donorstrust.org. That's tellmemore all together at donorstrust.org. And let me know what you think. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Mm-hmm.